In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Sunday. It's the Psychedelic Roundtable. We're here with all the usual suspects. We'll have some more coming in as the night progresses. Thanks for being here. Well, gentlemen, should we just go around the horn for everybody who may not know who people are? Let's go. Ben, we'll start with you, my friend. How's it going? Tell people about you just in case they don't know. Uh, BenjaminCGeorge.com is where you can find me, uh, host of the No Absolutes podcast, uh, writer of some books, and just uh, happy to be at another Sunday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. We're stoked to have you. Jason, how's it going, my friend? It's going great. Uh, yeah, Jason uh, with ExperienceIntegration.com. Uh, been doing our thing. We've been talking uh, masculinity on the podcast uh, with my partners called Telling Secrets and uh, getting ready to launch another one. Got my first two guests booked, so feeling pretty stoked about that. So some pretty cool stuff coming uh, down the pipeline on that front. Yeah, man, I'm excited to check it out. Paul, how are things in Maui? Good, I'm towing a tiny house. <laughs> good, good. Nice. Best intro nice. ever. You can't one-up that. Like, I'm... <laughs> Got the right picture for, for it, that's for sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? So I don't know how nice. long I'm going to be able to hang with you guys today, but I'll give it a shot. All right. Well, let's pick up where we were, man. Uh, for those just tuning in right now, we were kind of getting into out here in Hawaii. Like, We should be the number one place that legalizes drugs, cannabis, mushrooms, but we're not. Why do you think that is, Paul? I think there's too much money being made on the black market. I think they're trying to protect, you know, uh, black market growers and producers. Um, you know, there's a lot of rural spaces around here, especially like on Maui County, where people have been making money growing weed and selling it for a very long time. And I think they are, you know, in some ways doing the right things by trying to protect those guys. And in other ways, it's kind of a, 
detriment to our to our community over here by not having you know psychedelics and like marijuana more accessible out of yeah. curiosity what do they charge for for an ounce in maui of what of, of cannabis <laughs> like at a uh, like a well there's only two dis- two two dispensaries here mm-hmm. um and i want to say it's like 300 wow um but yeah it's like an 100 black market 150 depends on who you get mm-hmm. it from interesting that's you know i mean i see routinely in colorado especially up in denver you know people will be selling ounces for 60 70 bucks sometimes yeah yeah well uh i mean from what i understand the you know, the flood the floodgates have been open in colorado like people well. are just you know growing yeah but it's all uh, so it's happening in Colorado. I, I've heard it's happening in California. I know it's definitely happening down in like New Mexico because I know a couple growers in those places. And um, yeah, what's happening is a lot of people are growing, but the regulations that they're putting in place, you know, the testing requirements and then, you know, people who are trying to grow who aren't like a big corporation who, you know, submit all of this paperwork and all these things, they're delayed, you know, weeks, months sometimes. You know, they have to get their crops tested four or five times before they can actually bring it to market. There's all sorts of labeling requirements. There's all this overhead that they're uh, attaching to the to to those players. So it's kind of pushing out the the small guy. Why do you, why do you think that is? It seems like an overreach of regulation. I've I got some friends that are in the game in California, and they're saying the same thing. Yeah, where they're it's where it's supposed to be something that would give people more accessibility and drive down the prices, the black market is still alive and well over there because of all of those regulations. I'm just right. curious why that's happening. Well, I think I I think it's multifolded, but I think one of the aspects to it is because, uh, you know, it's a big business now. And just like all the other industries, when big business comes in, you know, it, it, they find a way to usually through regulations and governing bodies to kind of, you know, push out their competition. And because they have the capital to go ahead and afford all this overhead, and uh, they can do so uh, where the small guy, you know, they know that that small guy can't and eventually they get pushed out. All of a sudden, you know, those crops, those fields, they get bought up on pennies on the dollar. Uh, it's, I think it's money driven more than anything if I were to have to take a guess at it. Well, think about this. It, it goes the way of freaking milk, right? Like, oh, you can drink this milk, but you can't drink the natural milk. You can smoke our weed, but you can't smoke the weed you bought from your friend down the street. Like, again, yeah, it's a funneling into that element of control and ultimately giving us the ability to say, yes, now we can smoke weed as long as it's their, their weed. So then it becomes illegal to smoke again. I don't know. It's kind of a weird concept. Yeah. That's I want to say welcome. That's a good point. Yeah, I want to say welcome to Cole. Thanks for joining us, Cole. For those who may not know, man, can you tell people who you are? Maybe introduce yourself? Yeah, hey, everybody. Sorry I'm late. I didn't see the link. Um, yeah, Cole Butler, living here in Fort Collins, Colorado. Do a few things. Um, work as a dosing session monitor and study coordinator on an LSD for anxiety clinical trial. Uh, do some ketamine therapy work. A few other things here and there, but I'll keep it brief. That's who I am. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> nice, man. Yeah, stoked to be here. 
yeah, so I mean, I kind of, I guess this kind of gets us into everything with Prop One Twenty Two, right? Like, do what do you guys think is going to happen? Are, are we going to see the like we've just been covering this? Are we going to see the Maria Sabina's pushed out for the Elon Musk's? Is that what's going to happen? You see the small guys pushed out of here and big pharma come in and take things over? What do you think, Cole? Yeah, well. I'd like to think that that's not going to happen, but it feels like it's already sort of happening. Um, and that's just in my personal interactions. You know, my boss, Scott Shannon, he's a psychiatrist and he's very involved uh, in the space. And he's told me, you know, there will be probably thousands of centers opening up with anywhere from the mom and pop shop type places to the $50,000 experience in Vail. Um, but you know, there's at least one part of the regulations that says you can't have more than any financial interests in more than five centers, how that plays out. I don't know. I mean, it feels kind of baked into where it's not going to get out of control. Um, I've already personally experienced a lot of like pressure and sort of Game of Thrones feeling about trying to do something with this and kind of being pushed out or who makes it in, who doesn't, you know, it just feels very kind of, yeah, uncomfortable in terms of, you know, just trying to help people, trying to use this to heal people and then it becoming a big business. So that's where some of my hesitation lies. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens, but it's hard not to see people rushing in uh, to get the gold, just like, you know, the biotech companies right now. There's a new biotech company doing clinical trials every single day. I mean, it seems like overkill and I don't know, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the the cap on five institutions, you know, I read the language on that. I can start up a different business called holistic healing part three and I have another five and part four and part six. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually no, like, didn't seem like there was any hard restrictions when in the language there. So I, I imagine it gets abused pretty, pretty readily. Yeah. It's crazy to think about like, you know, if we look at what happened to cannabis and we see the licensing nightmares and we see some of the things we were talking about, people getting pushed out, you know, whenever there's big money at stake, there's big egos at stake and there's long-term market share at stake. Ben, what do you see as, as the next shoe to drop? I mean, is it going to be, is it going to be like just regulation? Is it going to be licensing that comes in is pushing people out? Or, or do you see that, is it possible that maybe there's some sort of, you know, silver lining for the small guy? I think there's silver lining for the small guy just in the sense that now we, you know, at an individual level, you have the ability to grow your own mushrooms. I think that's probably the greatest silver lining one could hope from from this. Uh, you know, I've already seen where there's multiple patents filed for, you know, they take psilocybin or psilocin or something like that. And they mm -hmm. add a methyl group or they're, they're adding some hydrogen in there. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's this new patentable product and they're already running trials with those those uh, chemical constituents. So I think there'll be some lag time, uh, but ultimately I, I, am, I could definitely see this going the route of, hey, uh, you know, yeah, you guys can have your mushrooms over here, but this is actually, you know, we've done clinical trials with all of, you know, this patented product that we have. 
And then I can see regulation flowing from that because they can claim, you know, greater efficacy. They can claim uh, greater safety because, you know, they have these, you know, the, the paper trail to back it up. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. I wonder. Um, so let, let me ask you this, Cole. You do a lot in the field right there. And this, this question's for everybody, but I wanted to start with Cole. Like, if they're able to patent a certain analog, does that mean that just that analog is patented or does it affect the other types of, of you know, analogs that are out there? I think it, it just pertains to that one. But the, the concern or the question, I guess, is with intellectual property. So, mm. you know, there's not very much I can say about MindMed, but it's out there on clinicaltrials.gov. What they're using is uh, LSD detartrate, which is basically just a salt form of LSD, right? It's the exact same chemical agent just delivered in a different form. But then, you know, they file those patents, they have exclusive intellectual property rights. Um, so it becomes a whole thing of, you know, they get to sell it, they get to manufacture it. Um, and then it doesn't open the door for freebase LSD to be <laughs> under the same, uh, uh, sort of access or it doesn't go through the whole FDA process, just the detartrate salt went through the whole FDA um, process. So I imagine it's a similar sort of thing uh, going on with those. And I know with the MDMA trials, uh, MAPS has not exactly a patent. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but nobody else can do research on MDMA for a certain amount of time. Um, but you see these other companies doing the same thing, you know, they modify it slightly. There's R slash MDMA, not Reddit R slash MDMA, but R dash MDMA. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that's the idea is to push their drug through the FDA process. And it's like, if you want LSD, well, we manufacture it, we sell it, but you can't just buy the free base version. Right. Yeah. And, you know, thanks to people like the likes of Disney, those those patents last, you know, 75 years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, Jason, like, what, or this question's for everybody. Like, what role does the individual play? Like, it seems to me like there's going to be people out there that don't want the Aspen experience with the Taj Mahal and like the red carpet and like, there's going to be people that want that and that will pay for that. But what about the teacher next door who's, just got divorced or is going through some psychological problems that m might might some of these laws be up to us like people like us choosing where we want to go to get treatment yeah i mean i think in a lot of ways there one of the beautiful parts about it is the the power of the people being able to to go figure this out and being able to grow and and being able to to do that and through that being able to provide maybe certain experiences to to people that aren't connected to the the business side of things and, and spending lots of money and just trusting that, um, you know, again, at the end of the day, this medicine for the people that are looking for that healing, they're going to find it. And, and they're, they'll, they'll kind of, again, I, I really do trust that thing at the end of the day. I think one of the, the more kind of, again, dark sides of this whole thing is going to be how much they're going to be able to manipulate the experiences so that you don't have to go through the hard stuff. 
right? Because of the fear, they're going to create fear around like a bad trip or a negative experience or purging or all these different things. And they're going to try to make the experiences as high as they can be without dealing with sometimes the difficult stuff, which we know sometimes is where the work needs to be done. That, that's, you know, the healing nature of the medicine. So it'll be interesting to see if they're, they're able to remove some of those healing elements of the medicine and then be able, because again, how they do anything is how they do everything, right? So you just, it's just kind of like, we don't have to look that far and without it being conspiracy, like this is literally the pattern and we know this pattern will apply. So again, for what people are looking for, I think they're going to be able to go find it. If people are really wanting healing, they're going to go to the underground mom and pop shop. That's like the weird hippies, you know, that society is like, oh, they do the weird natural mushrooms, right? Like, uh, we want to do organic mushrooms over here and none of the pain, right? Like we have all the fun without the hurt. Um, so I don't know. There's going to like anything. They're going to demonize the spirituality, the things that they can't control. And they're going to find the ways to have some control around that and then be able to say you're going to receive the same benefits. Well, you know, I, I think it's I think it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, Big Pharma is kind of based on treatment, right? You know, they're not really in the business of cures. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think we all have experience in this is that this actually is a pretty profound cure at, at certain levels for certain people at the right times, um, which is really shitty for repeat business. So, you know, to your point, Jason, I, I think they will start to extract pieces of the experience out to where it becomes more of a treatment based thing than actually, you know, the, the search for, for a cure for, you know, true medicine. Mm. Just on. So, yeah. One of the things I, you know, was thinking about, I went on a hike here in Colorado and I bought my national parks pass to Rocky mountain national park. And if you go to Rocky mountain, it's just like a Disney world, you know, it just feels that way. It feels very commercialized. Um, and I thought, well, I spent $70 on this pass. I've only been once in the past year. Let me go out there. Uh, so I start driving towards Estes park and I pull up on my GPS and I see a 13 minute delay at the entrance. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's another one of those days. You know, it's Saturday. I'm going to sit here for 15 minutes with a line, like eight lanes wide of cars waiting to get in to do, you know, these trails where I'm just on top of people the whole time. And I said, you know what? No, I pulled up my app and I found uh, Mount Olympus and I turned around and I literally parked on the side of the road. And I just started trekking up the side of this mountain. And I was like, I mean, it was hard. It was difficult. If I didn't have my GPS, I would have got lost. And anyway, don't want to harp on it too much. But moral of the story, most people want the thing that's already built for them. You know, they want the easy. Everybody's going kind of Rocky Mountain National Park, Colorado <laughs> mushroom experience. <laughs> um, and then there's a specialty, you know, small kind of let's do it organically. Let's do this the way it's meant to be done. Let's incorporate some ceremony, not turn it into this big whitewashed corporate uh, process. But, you know, I think ultimately people like people that don't know are going to want to go for what's safe and what's popular. But I think there's a lot of beauty in this sort of small organic type experience. Um, and that part excites me. It's the corporate trying to shut out the the small mom and pop shops because they think they're a threat um that scares me 
Yeah, I had an idea. Like I, I was, I was thinking about, you know, psilocybin as a Trojan horse. Like it seems to me that regardless where you had an experience, if you have a really profound experience, even if you find yourself as, as like a, a corporate type, might a profound experience start getting you to ask the question like, what the hell am I doing? Like I'm just trying to profit off this. It seems to me, at least for me, when I take psilocybin. I begin thinking to myself, like, okay, the, taking advantage of people is wrong. You know, doing this for this reason is wrong. And I'm wondering what you guys think about psilocybin as a Trojan horse. Might, might it be that, you know, some of the big corporations start dosing people, even their own executives, and then their own executives are like, wait a minute, we're doing this all wrong, man. We should be trying to help out the people, sort of profit off of it. Is that just pie in the sky or what? I think I think there'll be cases where it certainly happens. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've encountered people on my travels who, you know, they fit that bill, and then all of a sudden they do wake up one day and they're like, "Oh, what the hell am I doing?" Um, at the same time, I think the vast majority is going to fall to the <laughs> safety, like Cole, Cole was saying, uh, and it's going to be it's going to be a mechanism of marketing. You know, all these big pharma companies are going to have the money to put out the marketing. They're going to be able to pay for the FDA trials. They're going to be able to do all these things where now they'll be able to go out into the marketplace and make all these safety claims and efficacy claims. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's where the majority of people are going to go. We're already hardwired for consumerism. And I think that's going to be kind of the thing. I don't know that you're going to get the Trojan horse effect where all of a sudden, you know, the system's going to come crashing down because this got let in. Um, I, but I do see it happening in small scale, but I, I, I don't think you're going to have like, you know, the board of Pfizer all of a sudden realize there are a whole bunch of, you know, deplorable people overnight. I, well, and I think too, like, it's interesting and it's something that's always, I think, been a bit debated, at least from what I've seen of, of the movement in the last, you know, 70 years or so, that how much impact does set and setting really have on the intent and, and what experience you want to have. And Michael Pollan even addresses this in his book um, in How to Change Your Mind of like being, a, I think he called himself a materialist and not one that really believed in spiritual things. That is there this kind of like preconception set and setting that when you have these medicine experiences, you're going to experience some sort of spiritual thing. And, you know, is that are we almost conditioned to associate these two things? Right. And it's interesting because he has his experience and, and he's like, well, I did experience something. I don't know what it was, but, you know, he begins to change his mind. But it, it'll be interesting to see how much influence and conditioning they can do on someone mm -hmm. before they go into that experience and how they can kind of manipulate that. I don't know. Like that's that's one part that feels like it's a vulnerability of the medicine is that it can be manipulative or manipulated. Um, I don't know. Or can it? What do you guys think? Like, is that can can the medicine be manipulated? I got I got a um, I want to I recently talked to Rick Strassman on this idea. I want to read this email that that he sent okay. to me. Yeah, I it was just some some, you know, some. Hey, how's it going? And then I had mentioned to him. You know, are you worried about exactly what we talked about? Are you worried about the Maria Sabina's being pushed out for the Elon Musk? Here's what he says. What scares me more than the possibility of pushing out Maria Sabina for Elon Musk is pushing her out for PK Dick. Have you read his book, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge? If so, it provides an interesting and terrifying perspective on the psychedelic boom. For those that haven't read that book, dude, it's just about the corporate takeover of the mind. Like, 
people are all dosed up and all you do is see like this corporate world. And when, when, like, I didn't even think about that, but that is incredibly terrifying. And especially when you start looking at what Jason just said right there about what kind of propaganda goes into the treatment center. How would they, in fact, it's not that they would separate the, the spirituality from the Joes. They would replace the spirituality with the company. The company would take the place of the spiritual mm -hmm. nature. That would become the God head there. And if you just pan back, like you can see it. Like, you know, people talk about the holy man syndrome and all of us have probably felt it at some point in time. Like we've become evangelists for mushrooms. We're like, at some mm -hmm. point in time, it's like, I felt like, oh my God, I got all the answers, even though I don't. But like, you know, it's easy to slip into that idea right there. Imagine on a high corporate level at like a, a church-like setting, because that's what these places will be. They won't be churches, but the corporate structure will be a church-like setting where you go to almost worship to have your experience. It's replacing the very foundation of spirituality with consumerism and this drug. So I could see this weird twisting happen there. Like, what do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, I've already observed the, the I don't know, the church of corporatism uh, being rolled out in full force. Uh, you know, just through my startup ventures, uh, you know, or I won't name names or anything, but it was very much all of a sudden we're sitting there and I was like, wow, this is like a evangelical church service. People are putting their hands up. People are expressing all these things, but it's very corporate centric, um, you know, all about, you know, you know, getting, you know, we're, we're, they were essentially replacing that void of spiritualism with, you know, some sort of corporate version of it to try to, you know, create better workers and foster better businesses and create better investments. Um, and so that's already in full force. Um, so when you add the ability of, of a psychoactive substance on top of all of that, I think you do, you can have a recipe where, you know, people are going to end up in some pretty existential, interesting, interesting places. Uh, and I have a feeling there'll be a lot of existential crises. Now, I don't think that those will be in the sense that, oh, they're going to wake up and realize everything they're doing is bad. I think it's because it, it, it's not I think we're we're a little bit uh, further along in those paths. Right. We've been banging on these walls for years and years and years. I think mm -hmm. we often forget what it's like to just start on the path. Mm -hmm. And then if you were to imagine just starting on the path and then having this massive corporate entity basically controlling every single aspect of that telling you what to say when to say it where to go where you know when to show up how to take this what to do what not to do all of these things all of a sudden exactly like you said it replaces the godhead it fills that spiritual void but not with something of substance of, sub of substance uh but you know of uh, consumerism of mm. you know uh let's you know we do this for X, Y, and Z, not for healing, not for the benefit of society, not for anything like that. It, it, it takes a different angle, I think. Hmm. I think it reminds me of our conversation last week when we were talking about the, uh, I think it was in you know, eight, 1984 and the, the concept of new speak, right? And, and I was thinking a lot about this over this last week um, and thinking first on how we've shifted our culture into that of what they're calling a second orality culture, right? So like before we had, you know, the, this literature and the, and the book of the printing press, you know, we lived in an oral culture. And especially when you go back, you can see oral mm -hmm. tradition. And there is this almost shift of what's happened over the last 25, 30 years 
of where we've shifted from really gaining the majority of our knowledge through the written word and actually through listening to it by podcasting videos, ev like everything. Like we really now are, are uh, functioning more like an oral society than we are one that is driven by the written word. And so how we communicate, there's been these shifts. And so when you think about the idea of new speak, what is the best way that you can begin to like really infuse a culture is by the language that you use, what you can and cannot say. And it almost is like this shift into a second orality became easier to control some elements of, and again, we can see the control and the printing and whatnot. But I was, I was thinking about that, just how we're so dependent now on listening to, to people and listening to the, our, even using our voice, right. And in the car, like we don't, we can, we can speak things and they happen. We don't have to write stuff down anymore. These vocal assistants that are coming into our lives. And so this new speaks coming in and so you start watching like, how is this happening within the psychedelic movement? And it's interesting because so much of the language is PTSD, depression, anxiety, mental health. Mm -hmm. That's how they're talking about the healing of this stuff They're And, and right now it's, we're like at a, at a, a, a you know grassroot enough method that we all are like yes we've seen the impact of that but you don't have to get too much out of the grassroots where all of a sudden those things start to mean other stuff and and what does it mean to be depressed or what does it mean to have anxiety or what does it mean to have ptsd and they're going to be able to manipulate that i think in some ways that they're going to be new speak that we're going to watch develop right before our eyes i agree with that a lot um you know and just kind of an, an example of that when it first began uh look how many people gave their children Ritalin, Adderall, all of these things, just drugging up kids. And it was all on the, you know, the, the word of a doctor or a psychologist or something like that. Uh, there, you know, and you're not allowed to question the authority structure, but if everybody else is doing it, I, we might as, you know, it must be good for my kid. They give it to 20 other kids in the school. And so I think, you know, we've already started to see these these cycles, these patterns kind of play out in society. And I think I think we'll, a lot of what we'll see, for, especially from the corporate side of things, is exactly that. Hmm. Well, I think the way to address, you know, the broad corporate takeover and we're not going to be able to drug all these executives and change their minds, unfortunately, <laughs> but as much as i'd like that uh i mean i think it just has to start with the individual you know and we have to be each our own proponents of how the healing is supposed to look like and yeah. just bring awareness to what that corporate structure looks like and we're doing it now by talking about it and sort of bringing to light what it looks like for big money, big corporations to step into this space and take on this sort of form or figure um, in place of the true, you know, spiritual nature of the medicine and sort of start to try to just rip out the value um, yeah. and sell it and make a bunch of money. Um, but yeah, I think the way to, to hopefully try and prevent that is just to, uh, you know, each of us ourselves be voices for what this should look like, what it could look like, um, how to do it correctly and keep talking about it. Certainly the corporate sort of big money model has been what's been scaring me about this thing passing in the past few weeks because there's no stopping it. You know, it's just like this big tidal wave of big money rushing in and just trying to get a cash grab on this. And that seems so antithetical and, you know, to the medicine, it makes me so uncomfortable. Um, 
but in terms of shifts in consciousness, you know, it's got to happen little by little. Um, and I think taking the medicine is helpful in that direction. I agree. Yeah, hey, that's well said. I, I, you know, I, I think that the, the weird hippie couples giving organic mushrooms have a different way of applying it that is more effective. And I want to share what I think that is. We talked about the corporate structure and they seem to be based on repeat customers. They're going to want people to coming in and you can see the pattern of PTSD. You got to come in once every three months for your treatment. It's going to help. And that, and with that kind of language, like Jason was saying, begins the pattern of use where what I think the proper way is, and I'm, I'm curious if you guys agree with this, is that you could take it one or two times and learn how to solve that problem for yourself and then move on to the next problem. Like if you have depression, you should be able to take it once or twice, figure out what your problem is, and then solve that problem, and then the depression goes away. The depression isn't a long-lasting thing. The depression is a roadblock that, that got stuck in your way back here. So you, take, you sit down with a practitioner, someone that knows what they're doing, you remove that roadblock, then they can move forward. They might not need it again. They might need it one time. You know, if they wanted to do it again to solve something else, then I think that's the difference between, and I think that that's going to be the difference between small groups and people that really care about the individual and solving problems versus the corporate model. There's going to be, the corporate structure is probably going to have some sort of incentive structure for the doctors, an incentive structure to push more medicine, you know? And like that, that to me, might be enough of a downfall for 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 the smaller people to, to at least get a foothold. What do you guys think? I I mean honestly again this is where I trust the medicine. Like I trust that like it has been healing people for millennia. Right. It has popped up, it's disappeared from societies, it's reemerged, it's had this this uh, again bigger thing and and again I think for people that are truly looking for the healing, they're going to they're going to break out, but that's going to be the interesting thing is they're going to have to break out of a lot of new speak and they're going to have to be like, oh, I'm going to go trust someone in their basement and do this versus the nice, clean, you know, experience of what I would have at this beautiful facility. Like they're going to have to, they're going to have to be willing to break out. And I think those that are, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of us that are going to be ready to welcome them with open arms. And I, and I just trust that's going to be the process at the end of the day. That those that are that are there that are that want it will be able to find it. Otherwise, yeah, it's inevitable that the corporatocracy is doing this. It's not like yeah. on some levels, I feel like it can stop. No, I I don't think it stops. And if we look at you know just the underlying structure of everything, everything in our society is built for it to just continue to plow down the road unhindered. Hmm. Um, you know, this is the whole reason this got passed is because there was five million dollars invested in getting it passed. There was only there was one I think there was one uh, group who took up a stance against it and they managed to raise a grand total of twenty two twenty six thousand dollars, right? Yeah. Um, and do you know and where you that money it. came from? Uh, not off the top of my head, but I did look into it a little bit. Um, I was, I was I I know, is that public that information? Uh, most of it came from a group in Washington D.C. I'd have to double check the name, but I know three million of it, probably the initial funding, was mm -hmm. from the group that was behind campaigning for the initiative, and then a lot of it was donations. And I actually hopped on a call like a week before the bill was passed that said they were up to almost nine million dollars. Oh, really? In funding? Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, anyway, not to interrupt, but no, 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 no. Chime in whenever, yeah. 
Um, yeah, that, so $9 million is a big number, right? You know, we couldn't come up with $9 million if, you know, if they held our family at gunpoint, probably. Uh, and so I think we're going to see, uh, you know, it's just like what happens in, in D.C. these days. Uh, lobbyists from big corporate interests get a whole bunch of money. They write these bills. These bills get presented to senators who are going or in Congress people who are going to vote a certain way based upon the donations that they received from these same people. Uh, and that's just kind of the system that we have at a, at a regulatory and legal level in this country right now. And to suspect that it would change for this, I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, when I, was I don't want to. Sorry, George, you can go ahead. No, please. Yeah, I just had one point, I guess, I want to bring up, which is sort of relevant here, which I've been reading about, and I think, I don't know the guy's name 100%, I think it was Mason Marks, but he was like MD, JD, like Harvard School of Law, I mean, he wrote this just intense article about data privacy, um, which, you know, for me is a pretty big issue, and uh, it seems like um, the state of Colorado, or I don't know who, I think these funding groups are going to have sort of exclusive access to the data. And there's a big concern around uh, PHI, public health, private health information, mm -hmm. um, who has access to that. And then this sort of gold mine of data that's going to come from all of this. Um, and there's really no provisions for people to opt out of their data being collected or legal protections if it's not considered PHI. Um, and that's really a big, big concern of mine. Uh, moving forward, it seems like these interest groups, you know, are not donating money to the cause, but investing money in the cause exactly. to, uh, you know, get access to a bunch of very, very valuable data that's very hard and very expensive to obtain if you're doing it in the clinical trials route. Mm -hmm. And big data is yeah, a big you business. You control the information, you can control where everything goes, right? You can control what's happening, what's not happening. And that brings me to another part. Mm -hmm. I was reading through the uh, through the bill and it talks about the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. You know, when you start getting mm -hmm. boards together, you got 15, mm -hmm. you got like a little gang, right? You got 15 people mm -hmm. up there. How do you get a board seat? Well, it's probably not gonna be me or you. You know, it's probably not mm -hmm. gonna be the small guy up there. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I know a little bit about this. You can make recommendations okay. for who's gonna sit on it, but um, one of the individuals behind passing the act, Kevin Matthews, had told my boss or my boss told me by him, I guess, that he's probably going to be making recommendations on who sits on the board, and then Dora will decide. They're going to be like, who's the experts here? Um, you know, who do you think we should put on this board? Um, and then they get to decide, and then they make the decisions. But you can sort of advocate for who you'd like to sit there, and you can apply to have that done. Sure, so but, we'll you know, you know, what board is going to elect uh, the, the shaman, the crazy bearded shaman who's up in the mountains <laughs> when, you know, they're being set up against some guy who's ran 17 clinical trials. It, yeah. it becomes just an echo chamber at some level, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's not in the interest of the board to put crazy shamans, not crazy, but, you know, <laughs> well, they might be. you never know. Yeah, who knows? Shamans in political seats you know it's weird how sometimes the world we live in 
echoes literature. And when I think about that, I think about Brave New World and The Island. In both those books, they use Soma, you know, or the Moksha medicine, but it seems similar to me. And in one hand, like, I, I almost think that these are the two clinical, or these are the two settings, right? Like, Brave New World, where you mm -hmm. use Soma to get through the stressed times, seems to be the road in which big pharma is using it, where on the island, the moksha medicine, you have kids taking it, going through trials and tribulations and rituals and using it to better themselves and have like a form of self-optimization in a positive way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just, it's weird how it could be written so long ago, the paths that are out there. Cole, I know you're a fan of both of those books. What do you yeah. think is the, what do you, like, how do we, how do we get more of the island from mm -hmm. Brave New World? Well, it's been a couple of years since I read Island, maybe more than a couple. But uh, if I remember correctly, they say explicitly it's actually psilocybin uh, that they're using. And there's a whole beautiful, I want to say chapter, at least section where, yeah, their 16-year-olds basically go through an initiation ceremony with psilocybin. And, you know, they're raised rock climbing and close to nature and doing these kinds of things. Um, but there is the contrast in Brave New World between the sort of Soma-controlled society and the sort of brash tribalism uh, and kind of like seeing the positives and negatives of both of those. But, you know, I think Island does a good job of painting that picture of not just the medicine, but the broader societal sort of setup of how do we set up our society's policies to be better? Like kids get to go to other people's houses and they run around freely and they're always around parents and these kinds of things. And just kind of like integrating society more. And so for me, that's a very big element. Like the society has to, you know, be in alignment with the medicine. And right now our Western society is very corporate capitalistic and this, uh, you know, this medicine sort of doesn't fit in with our other medicines and we're trying to fit it into that system and it's not working, but we need to make the societal level changes um, really uh, to see the, the healing that we want. I think, you know, we, we talked about this in plenty of times on the round table, uh, but the rise of parallel economies, parallel systems, parallel societies, I think that's probably where we'll actually see these things thrive. Um, you know, because we we do exist at a time where we can define, you know, a, a framework for a, a society, for a community. And, you know, we can run these experiments. And I think, you know, there's already a lot of interest to do so. I know a lot of people are working on it besides me. Uh, and I think probably over the next couple of years, you know, You'll have these centers, you'll have the corporate side of it, but we'll we'll start to see rises of more, you know, kind of like a uh, throwback to your hippie communes, but very different, mm -hmm. um, much more structured, much more uh, organized, uh, you know, different types of, of uh, societal merit systems, you know, things based on meritocracies, you know, you're going to have, you know, big city centers probably rolling out experiments with universal basic incomes coming down the pike here pretty quick. Uh, and so we're, I think we'll start to see a lot of these. And I, and I, betcha that's where you know the the medicine thrives is in those types of environments hmm. yeah i wanted to add to i think that there's a different aspect as far as like we've been talking about the psychedelic effects 
of psilocybin and the psychedelic effects of treatment and what it can treat. But I want to talk about something you can learn just not not just by taking it, but by watching it. Like if you grow mushrooms, like let's think about the terminology. You're going to colonize a jar of seeds. You're going to colonize like something. Like that's that's this is kind of what Ben is talking about. When, when you say uh, starting new systems, I say let's look at the way the fungus grows and then we can apply that to the way we could build a society. You And I know colonization gets a bad, it's, it's kind of a bad tangent to it, but just think about like us, as the first inoculation going out and now we're beginning to colonize like it's me meeting cole it's ben meeting jason it's us reaching through the airwaves right now and talking to colorado talking to people in switzerland reaching out to people in alaska like we're, we're actually beginning to colonize and form the same way the mycelium branches out and and moves ideas and moves nutrients to other parts so too are we acting like the mycelium we're acting like the we're acting out the medicine and pretty soon you're going to see these fruits grow. And I think that, you know, I, I can tell you my podcast alone has just, I, I don't even know how this happened, but it's when I began seriously taking, when I, when I really began looking at my life through the idea of you don't come into this world, you come out of it. And I, I, I think about mushrooms all the time like that. Like, do we are growing as a network? And if I think if more people understood that, you know, we we move like that. We grow like that. I think if we can get away from the language of mine and switch it up to ours, like it's uh, the second you say it's mine or it's his, you you have erased the fact that we work together. And I think that that's kind of what mushroom shows us. If you look the way it grows, it has to reach a certain level before it fruits, and that's what we have to do as a network. Like so, I'm I'm just I'm just trying to make the point that you can learn a lot about the world and the environment you live in. Not necessarily by taking mushrooms, but just like watching mushrooms. Have you guys ever mm -hmm. thought about it from that perspective? Well, I think. So I was going to say the one the one thing I think is interesting about that is also remembering that that this beautiful mycelium network supports lots of mushrooms, not just the ones that make us give us magic. They also support the mushrooms that freaking you know take over the ants and invade entire colonies and wipe out ants through its seed, and it's the kind of mushrooms that can. You know, like in Paul's or the film Fantastic Fungi, where they're talking about the ability to, to use mycelium and mushrooms to like break down oil and the evils. Like, mm -hmm. so I think on some levels, like the the answer is yes. Like the mushroom, like still, like it shows us this beautiful network, but it's also going to do a lot of different things for us besides just give us the the magic and the connection to to something bigger than ourselves. The best systems that I've ever observed, designed and operating, are systems that reflect nature. Mm. Yeah, and I, love, and I think there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. yeah, I just I think about mushrooms a lot too. You know, um, used to read a lot about them. Still do sometimes. Actually, I've got a soup going right now. Got three different kinds of mushrooms. Nice. I found those mm -hmm. little. I don't know. They're grown in China, but I don't even know what they're called. But it's a bunch of little tiny ones um, and oysters. Oh. No, no. I I wish um anyway yeah and then as jason was speaking i was also thinking about how mushrooms uh you know and mycelium integrates underneath the ground with other organisms and supports other systems and organisms and there's a whole interconnected deeper nature between the mushrooms and the rest of life certainly between our brains and psilocybin which is just completely mind-blowing in and of itself um but the mushrooms you know can give us nutrients 
you know, if we eat the right ones. Um, mm -hmm. And they also give, uh, you know, nutrients to the trees and the root systems and they mm -hmm. feed back and forth. And I think that's really beautiful as well. You know, I, yeah. I mean, we're, in, you know, we're, mushrooms are really interesting in the fact that they inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide similar to us, right? Um, we have a fungal system in our body, uh, you know, and very neglected fungal system for most people as yeah. it were. Um, and I think that's why, you know, the advent of, you know, not just the medicinal mushrooms, but also, you know, the healthy mushrooms and, and, and you know, uh, Paul Stamets has done fantastic work on things like turkey tail, uh, fly agaricon, you know, uh, reishi, cordyceps, all, you know, and there's, you know, lion's mane. And, you know, we found awesome properties from these because they engage something that's inherent in us. Uh, and, I think that's a very, you know, it's a nice fundamental aspect. It's like a cannabinoid system, you know, it, you know, it, we have all these systems in our body and the more that we can nurture them uh, and then, you know, as above, so below, which we talk about a lot on this show, uh, these are things that we can then take from the internal to the external. Uh, and I, you, there's lessons to be learned. There's metaphors to be had uh, and there's a lot of good times with it as well, I think. Ben, you had mentioned a while back something about ionophores, but I, I don't know that we fully got into that. And could you maybe explain that again? Sure. Uh, ionophores are basically, they're the charge carrier in the body. So you, when your cell produces a charge, the ionophores take that charge and, and propagate it to the surrounding tissue. Uh, the more ionophore content that you have, the greater that charge density can be. Uh, and it's And from the literature, it says that Ionophores are generated uh, mainly via uh, fungus and uh, bacteria in the human body. Uh, so the idea, and you know, this gets into like the bioelectric field, which is getting a lot of interest now. Um, is kind of you know we have biochemistry and then bioelectricity because there's different bioelectric states that seem to have an effect, and we kind of know this from the literature, right? We used to shock people, and we still do. You know, you hook up, you know, people to electric shock therapy, that still happens. You're basically manipulating the bioelectric field to create some sort of physical response at the at either the chemical, the biochemical level, the neuronal level, or, you know, just the, the like physical level in terms of like healing. Um, and, and so there's a lot of active research on this, and I think we'll see a lot more in the coming years. Uh, but to me, it seems that magic mushrooms especially really kind of uh, upregulate this bioelectric activity via this ionophore channel. Um, at least that's kind of what I'm putting together. Uh, it's still active research, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think about. You know, I was, as I was thinking about our previous conversation a little bit earlier, what can we try to steal? Let's try to steal man the um, pharmaceutical end of it. Like what are some good things that could come out of these guys? Like, having the money get in there and then maybe finding some new analogs or like, can you think of some really good things, Cole, that could come out of pharma bringing big money into this area? Yeah. I mean, probably the biggest one is safety data um, and accessibility via insurance coverage. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very much the hippie guy in many senses, but I also work on these psychedelic clinical trials, you know, and it's a very laborious process to, 
to do it and to do it safely. I mean, it's a lot of the times it feels like overkill, but it's like, hey, we're going to give LSD to people. Like, we're going to take a lot of safeguards if we're going to do this above board. Way too many, in my opinion, but, you know, you set it up very carefully and cleanly so that you can get good, clean data. And a lot of what the FDA cares about is uh, safety. You know, so you have your primary outcome measures, which are very scientific. Did it work? How much did it work? How strong was it kind of thing? And to follow up. And then you've got what are the adverse events? You know, are there serious adverse events? Is somebody committing suicide? Um, and you record every single adverse event, whether somebody stubs their toe in their own home while they're enrolled in the trial. It has nothing to do with the drugs. And they come in and they say, I stubbed my toe. Well, then you say, okay, well, that probably wasn't related to the drug. It was moderate or mild, you know, and, you know, the, the thing that you get with that is a lot of very valuable data on safety. Um, and then, you know, without the insurance companies having that safety data, they can't say what the risk profile is to make it more accessible. And I'm sure we could get deep down a rabbit hole of the healthcare system and the insurance model and how that plays into pharmaceuticals. I certainly could, but uh, mm -hmm. anyway, um, you know, the, these treatments are extremely expensive. Providers time is very expensive. Obviously we want, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but male female therapy pair seems to be the best kind of model for like full day MDMA sessions and probably others as well. That's kind of how we're doing it in the LSD trial and paying for providers time, you know, nurse practitioners, 250 an hour, psychiatrists, 300 an hour, LPC therapists, 150 an hour. And, you know, you're talking about eight hour days and then you're talking about preparation, integration work. So, pretty soon and facility fees, you know, pretty soon you get into the tens of thousands of dollars range for treatment. And that's just only accessible to a small slice of the pop population, you know, so in terms of accessibility to the, you know, lay public, the general public, we need insurance reimbursement, but we're not going to have that without having a lot of data on safety. Wow. Hmm. That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I agree with that if we're steel manning the argument. I disagree with that from the perspective of, you know, what's the LD50 on psilocybin? There isn't one recorded no to my man. knowledge, right? Um, you know, same likewise for LSD. I don't think there's an LD50. Um, but, you know, so we have these substances that are very much proven from other types of data to be very, very safe. Uh, but I know where you're coming from, from the insurance perspective and the, the alternative risks, the suicides, the things like that, that has to be there for insurance to take part of this. And that gets into, you know, the rabbit hole of that model. Uh, but, you know, to counter the steel man argument, I, you know, I think these things have been growing on this planet for millennia. Um, and they've potentially have, you know, influenced society multiple times over. And I think they're going to do it again. And I think, you know, having the ability to for everybody to grow mushrooms is probably, you know, that that first step of, of that evolution of things. Um, you know, I, we're steel manning it, so I don't want to push back on it too much. But, <laughs> you know, it's just. Yeah. 
it's hard for me to steal, man, this one. Uh, <laughs> medicine medicine <laughs> for money, medicine for profit is, uh, is something that just grates, grates me the very wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Jason, you got any thoughts on that? I just appreciated that deep dive Cole took us on and thinking about just the, the costs and how they're kind of creating this infrastructure of that it has to be done these certain ways. And it'll, it'll also be interesting to say, you know, maybe again, for, for insurance to take this stuff, we're still years out from any of this oh, yeah. really coming into the mainstream. I mean, still even just looking at the path of marijuana, you know, I think it, it feels like this is going to move a little bit faster, possibly because marijuana has kind of been laying the groundwork over the last decade. And so it's like if we were able to get marijuana working on a federal level, that conversation is now coming into the mainstream. This kind of feels like it, it won't be too it won't take maybe as long. But we're still, let's just say, a decade out from this really coming into the to the mainstream. And so there's it'll be interesting to see societally how. On some levels, dude, the upper echelon, you know, the bigger divide between the haves and the have nots, um, the haves have this piece to their life because they're having these experiences and they have access to it and they're they're getting this healing. And we see kind of the further separation from those that maybe can't get access to it. Um, and that's where I think that will be really, again, trusting the power of, of people to be able to facilitate it in in smaller, more mom and pop shops and hoping that that can be a, a faster movement on some levels. Um, once this stuff gets all kind of legalized, like, great. Now, you know, again, looking at the measure, I can apply for a license. I have a healing center. I don't have to maybe do all of the same pieces for the scientific testing and whatnot. And I can start just being able to work with people and provide healing. The faster we can get there, the, the, the better. So again, we know the other side's going to happen. So how do we then just look at the positives? Like, great, this will give us the access in the mainstream, like more and more people was talking about it. And now we can start being able to, to just the people that want it, be able to provide it for them. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, it gets me thinking too, like I, Cole I, and Cole, Ben and Jason, I don't have any clinical trial experience, but I'm speaking to maybe you guys that do like, how do you, like, let's just say a generic clinical trial for LSD. Like, how do you, how do you create a trial to tell how strong something is? Like, how do you measure the strength of something in like that Cole? Um, well, if I understand your question correctly, I mean, that's kind of the trial I'm working on. So it's a dose finding study. So they're testing a placebo, uh, 25 micrograms, 50, hundred and 200, and then randomizing to any five of any one of those five treatment arms, you get one dose. And then you see what happens, uh, with anxiety and you plot it on a dose response curve. Um, so the primary outcome measure for us is the Hamilton, a anxiety measure. So basically have a random blinded person assess their anxiety with a semi-structured diagnostic interview, and then you give them the LSD and come back and see what happens. Um, and then, yeah, once you have that data, you can plot it on the curve. I don't know about like how strong the medicine is as much as like how much it works. Um, I guess that's more pharmacokinetic kind of stuff, unless you're just talking about subjective effects. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just, I was curious how, what a clinical trial looks like from that angle. It, it's, you know, how, it seems interesting on attempting to measure some things that are subjective. And I'm, it sounds like there's ways to kind of, kind of get around it. You know, I was reading in the story about, 
they would look at rats and watch their head twitch, but you know, like that doesn't seem to be a real good measurement. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of these scales are kind of subjective scales and the idea, you know, kind of the underlying philosophy is that if you repeat it enough, you'll get kind of a correlation to the data. So mm. then you can, you can, you know, get some takeaways from that, that kind of give you the idea that, Hey, you know, in 80% of subjects, it was reported, you know, that, that they weren't on the placebo, that they had this subjective experience. And then you can take away pieces of data like that. So yeah. you got to use the masses to, to pull out, you know, kind of more explicit information. And I mean, you could get deep into the whole question of whether or not subjective reporting is uh, right. valid <laughs> way yeah. to measure. There's a lot of argument about else. that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's pretty much the basis of the field of psychology is just like right. asking people yep. questions about what they think or feel. And, you know, I mean, I guess you just kind of have to trust that. And it seems like that's a fairly reliable measure. Um, just to be able to say, how anxious are you feeling? What's it feel like in your chest? Um, I don't know, things like that. And, you know, if you have a blinded person do it that has no idea who they are, you hand them a laptop and then they're zoomed in with some PhD somewhere that's doing the assessment. It's like they shouldn't have any idea of what treatment arm they got. Um, they care a lot about that in clinical trials, <laughs> for sure, the blinding and expectancy effects and placebo response reduction. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, gentlemen, I, I've been a little bit under the weather. I'm going to, I'm going to start landing the plane here, man. But before we go, I just wanted to maybe start with Ben here and give me your thoughts on what do you think is the best case scenario for prop 122? And what do you think is the worst case scenario for 122, Ben? Well, I'm pretty sure we covered the worst case scenario. Yeah, um, I agree. I, 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 you know, and I, I, we'll go back into that. I think the best case scenario, we, we kind of touched on it too. And I think, you know, Jason really touched on it. Um, I think it, we have the opportunity now to have a grassroots movement outrun the, the slow, laborious and cumbersome corporate entity structure and insurance models and all these things that have to be accounted for and uh you know upheld uh so i think that's the best case scenario is we do have people on the ground we have we have you know three of us here in colorado you know we have people on the ground who are already years and years and years into this effort and i think that there is a, a window of opportunity for you know, and I think it will arise in kind of those parallel society, parallel community type situations. But I think it, this is a wonderful opportunity at the end of the day for for just the actual aspect of the application of medicine and what this actually means to society at a larger whole. Yeah, that's well said. Jason, what are your final thoughts on this whole situation? Yeah, I think the positive, again, when I was reading over the actual act, I wanted to read like the first part. So I thought it, this is actually the best part of the whole thing. And it says that the voters of the state of Colorado find and declare that Colorado's current approach to mental, mental health has failed to fulfill its promise. Coloradoans deserve more tools to address mental health issues, including approaches such as natural medicines that are grounded in treatment, recovery, health and wellness rather than criminalization stigma suffering and punishment 
I mean, come on. That's like, I think that's a statement we could all agree with, right? Yeah. And that, that's the good news, right? And so I think, yeah, we've talked a lot of doom and gloom and, and we can definitely see some of the negative. But to, to echo Ben's point, if we can outrun this thing and enough people begin waking up and enough people begin to, to start to see that the system has not been supportive to them, then we will see this as maybe the, the mycelium network to birth the next thing that's going to be coming. Because we know a lot of structures are about to come down uh, on some levels. And so maybe this is the groundwork that's needed of getting the right people awake so that when the shift happens, we have the, the right army ready to go and fight that battle. So that to me is the best case scenario of what we can be working on in the short term. Next three to five years is just building that army of people that are awake to Gaia. Moving other people. I like it. I like it. Cole, what what would you say in summary to the situation? Yeah, that's a hard that's a hard one to follow. I know, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't see like it's hard to say like best case, worst case because I feel like the picture we've kind of painted is like the worst worst case is this big corporatization and the best case is just kind of like access to natural healing and you know there's no way that the corporatization isn't going to show up um so it's really just kind of like what happens i guess and like hopefully you know the direction it moves in and i think all of that just rests on the accessibility piece you know and the doors are open so i mean i guess best case scenario is the corporate doesn't squash out everybody else um (laughs) you know and and hopefully it it opens the doors to like people with good intentions that like really want to practice this work for the right reasons that aren't overly hyped or money crazy or just excited to catch the newest hot wave to like step in and really do the work because you know there's people um you know like myself who have really been doing this work for a long time and I, I was sitting in a group ketamine session the other day and I was like, you know what, this is kind of boring. Uh, you know, sitting here, there's three people with their eye shades on and, you know, we're sitting here for an hour. Um, but I'm here and I'm doing the work and, you know, I mean, granted, it's good to hold space for them. And a lot of the exciting stuff comes afterwards when they tell you what the hell they saw. But, um, you know, it was just like, well, there's no reason to get like overly rushed or overly excited. I mean, sometimes it's scary in there. Sometimes it's boring, but it's just like, okay, I'm right here with somebody that's going through it right now. You know, I'm doing it, you know, there, it's not this big, crazy thing. It's not, my life is amazing. It's not, wow, my God, I can't believe I'm doing this work. I'm just super aligned and focused right now. It's just, you know, work and it's important work and it's good work and it's gratifying but you know at the end of the day it's just like the people that are in it for the right reasons are just going to keep showing up no matter how much hype there is um and hopefully that that is a stable enough thing to yeah to keep us going to keep us alive to (laughs) move us in the right direction man that's really well said and i i believe like i so many i've met so many people with their hearts in the right spot that actually care about what happens to other people. And I think that there's a lot more of us than there are of them. And I know you shouldn't use us and them or whatever. Ultimately we're probably all the same, but there's so many good people and I'm sitting next to three of them right here. Cole, you've recently started kind of a new venture. Why don't you tell people about that? Oh yeah. Thanks man. Um, yeah, I have a small, uh, coaching and consulting business. So, uh, 
I've been coaching people around recovery from problematic cannabis use. Not all cannabis use is problematic, I understand, but for some people like myself, it, it is and has been. Um, so started doing that and also can do some psychedelic integration coaching or sort of career alignment stuff. Um, yeah, and the consulting is kind of around if you have a career and you're looking to be more involved with psychedelics, I can help guide people in that direction. Um, you know, mostly for me, it's been a more traditional research environment into a psychedelic research environment. So that's kind of my wheelhouse. Um, but, you know, I'm open to exploring kind of other shifts into psychedelic careers and what that might look like whether that's in therapy, also do that. So yeah, just kind of like a, a side project to help get more people in the space, help people out. Where can people find you at? It's lionheartwellness.net or Cole Butler on LinkedIn. Nice. I would recommend everybody check out Cole. He's an amazing individual. He genuinely cares about making the world better. And um, he's... If you just read some of his posts, you'll have to stop for a minute and be like, it's amazing. How come I didn't think of that? You know what I mean? But he's really awesome. Ben, what do you got going on, my friend? I, I've seen the podcast blowing up over there, and I'm surprised you haven't mentioned No Absolutes, the book, once yet. Well, you know, I, 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 I try to not to plug it all the time. <laughs> uh, Why not? Plug it. Come on. <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah, I've... Uh, been taking care of my little one-year-old nephew recently so i've been a little uh behind the scenes more than anything um yeah i'm working on a lot of automation to kind of help build this network and uh put it to the next level uh more podcasts should be coming out here pretty soon i just need to find the time <laughs> so that should be in the next week or so but yeah uh check me out at benjamincgeorge.com for the book the podcast and anything else that might be coming down the pike. Yeah. And for those listening, there's a reason they call him Mr. Wizard. The more that I spend time with Ben, <laughs> the more I realize how much of a wizard he is, man. Thank you, Ben, for everything. Jason, what, what's going on, man? I know you've got some things in the works. Yeah. Just uh, continuing the, my podcast called Telling Secrets with my partner that we have an episode coming out pretty much every week on that which is always a lot of fun. And then I've been working on kind of starting a, a solo podcast focusing on masculinity and fatherhood that uh, should be coming out with its first couple episodes in the next few weeks. So looking forward to seeing that kind of come online. Yeah, me cool. too, man. I, I've, I've had a real great time getting to hang out with you a little bit and I'm, I'm impressed with the work you're doing. And I think you're one hell of a communicator, man. So thanks for being a part of it. Thanks, man. So that's what I got for today, ladies and gentlemen. This is an epic show. Thank you to every one of you for spending some time with me today. Usually we do two hours, but I'm a little down and out right now. So uh, well, I'm really better, thankful, though. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys. <laughs> I will talk to you next week. Thank you so much, everybody. Aloha. Thank you. See you.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.